Chapter 41 of the Principles of Economics with Applications to Practical Problems. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Principles of Economics with Applications to Practical Problems by Frank Albert Fetter. Chapter 41 Reaction of Consumption on Production. Section 1 Reaction upon Material Productive Agents 1. Economic consumption is the enjoyment of the utilities which wealth is capable of affording. All wealth looks towards consumption. To take away the prospect of the enjoyment of goods is to take away all their value. Consumption involves generally the using up of a thing. Food is consumed quickly, clothing more slowly, and houses wear out after many years. The using up is, in some cases, due to the forces of nature, and is not hastened by enjoyment. A house goes to ruin more rapidly if uninhabited than with a careful tenant. Clothing is destroyed more quickly by moths than by wear. The use of many goods that give aesthetic pleasure, as art, painting, sculpture, and the enjoyment of fine scenery, or of beautiful building sites, does not destroy the things that afford the pleasure. The idea that all value originates in labor has led to false views on this question. The essential mark of consumption is the using of the income as it arises, not necessarily the using up of the material agents that afford it, though this frequently occurs as well. 2. The kind of consumption affects the value of material agents. Each buyer helps to determine the use of productive agents. The control of purchasing power means the potential control of industry to that degree. It was necessary in discussing the enterpriser to recognize that the buyer eventually dictates the direction of industry. The enterpriser seeks to produce that for which there is most demand. A change of taste affects the value of natural agents. An increase in the demand for meat affects the value of wheat and potatoes, and also the land used for producing them. A change in the national diet may be equivalent to the discovery or to the destruction of half a continent. If one chooses to drink wine instead of buying statuary, he increases the value of vineyards and decreases that of marble quarries. If one drinks beer, he bids for barley. If he eats candy, he may be offering a bounty for beets. Therefore, choosing vines or violets, pictures or pretzels, each with his nickel helps to determine what shall be produced. The distribution of wealth thus affects the value of agents. The wealthy spend relatively more for luxuries, the poor for food and other essentials. Where wealth and incomes are very nearly equally distributed, the demand of different families will be for much the same kind of goods. If there were no rich men, the demand for vineyards producing fine wines would be less. The very best qualities of goods take on the highest prices when there is a small but very wealthy class of purchasers. Inventions often shift demand and value follows. The invention of the bicycle with pneumatic tires, coincident with the adoption of electric traction for streetcars, reduced the price of horses between 1890 and 1895. This doubtless was a factor in agricultural land values at the time. This change was sudden, extreme, and temporary, and there has since been a gradual adjustment and a return to the former values. 3. The production of the next period may be radically affected by the use now made of agents. Some consumption takes the form of using up and reducing the stock of wealth. 
The demand for lumber causes the disappearance of the forests, whereas the demand for oranges stimulates the planting of orange trees. The reckless exploitation of natural resources leaves society poorer. Great herds of buffalo were slaughtered to get the hides, which were of comparatively slight value. Rich land has been exhausted to get a few harvests. War is a use of wealth for ends believed at the time to be necessary and believed to forward social welfare better in the long run than would dishonorable submission, but it causes misery and leaves industry prostrate. The forms taken by savings are affected by the choice of expenditure. In war, the savings of individuals are given to the government and used for destructive purposes. The lender parts with his wealth and society uses it up. While the lender has a claim on the industry and on the remaining property of the community, society as a whole is the poorer. If the savings had taken the form of public buildings, libraries, railroads, and factories, the wealth and income of society as a whole would have been enhanced. 4. The kind of consumption affects the wages of the various classes of labor. That an increase in the supply of a given grade of labor reduces its wages and encourages its use, and vice versa, is a truth that became familiar in the study of wages. An influence also is exerted from the side of goods upon the price of labor. A shift of demand from one kind of goods to another depresses the wage of the one kind of labor and raises that of the other. A low grade of labor that performs only simple tasks, and those but badly, is injured if demand shifts to better products. Back of the sweatshop shirt is the problem of the inefficient worker. Progress takes place by the effort of labor to increase its efficiency and to move into higher paid callings, and at the same time by the desire of the purchaser to buy as good a quality as he can. Every buyer then determines in some degree the direction of industry. The market is a democracy where every penny gives a right of vote. It is the thought of the society called the Consumers League, that through purchases pressure may be brought to bear upon the employer to provide better conditions of work. The members of the Consumers League refuse to buy goods not made under sanitary conditions. Undoubtedly, there is here a great economic force which an enlightened public opinion, even without a formal association, can make in large measure effective. Every individual may organize a Consumers League, leaguing himself with the powers of righteousness. Will he read a yellow journal, or a pink, or a white one? A nickel or two will buy either. He has a dollar. Will he go to the theater, or buy ten dishes of ice cream? He decides to buy a book, and more type and paper are made, and more printers are employed. He subscribes to foreign missions, and Christian workers penetrate farther into Africa. Every purchase has far-reaching consequences. You may spend your monthly allowance as an agent of iniquity or of truth. You cannot escape a choice even by burying the money, for that is either a demand for gold or a gift to the issuer of paper currency. Section 2. Reaction upon the Efficiency of the Workers 1. All consumption works some temporary change in the consumer, making him a more or less efficient producer. Most consumption goods are used to gratify a wish of the moment. Many actions are governed by impulse rather than by reason but in general this impulse is in harmony with the interests of efficiency. In primitive society, instinct and appetite must generally have been safe guides. Food not merely appeased hunger and gratified the palate, but it gave strength. Sensations of cold, hunger, and thirst were developed by nature to stimulate men to do the things that helped them survive. 
In primitive societies, there are few chances to seek pleasure that are not favorable to efficiency. In the struggle for existence, the more efficient tribes survive, and those that develop many abnormal tastes must perish. But the conditions of modern life are more complex, and temptations beset men on every side. Tastes are pampered and appetite is gratified at the expense of later welfare. 2. The physical efficiency of the worker is conditioned on wise consumption. Chemists and physiologists are telling now in accurate terms how the nutritive value of foods differ. Food values are not measured by the pleasure afforded the palate. The wide variety and greater choice now possible, even to the modest purse, make the chance of error much greater than in simpler conditions. This subject, already touched upon in the sections on the efficiency of labor, deserves further notice. From youth to age, the foolish choice of goods yields its harvest of ultimate misery. When babies are fed on crackers dipped in coffee, or, as among the Italian immigrants, on stale bread dipped in sour wine, there is a poor foundation laid for a vigorous manhood. Rich and poor cook too much for taste and too little for nutrition or digestion. Much cooking is still done in ways fit only for our grandfathers, who had cast-iron stomachs and worked in the open air. Culinary methods have not been adapted as yet to a sedentary life. Drinking tempts some men not only by taste, but by the appeal to social ability. To other coarser natures, the joys of Bacchus offer the one hope of exhilaration. The pleasure from alcoholic liquor may at the moment outweigh the cost in money, but a diseased appetite forbids any reckoning of the vast psychic cost that follows. The coin paid for the drink is the beginning of the expense. Misery, disgrace, degeneracy, and bestiality too often are the unreckoned items. Clothing is primarily for ornament, secondly for physical comfort. That was the historical order, and it is the logical order in most minds today. How badly the two needs are harmonized. No wonder that the savage suffers in adopting civilized dress. Travelers describe the African potentate, attired in a high hat and a bracelet, striving to outshine his rival, resplendent in full dress coat and a palm-leaf fan. Civilization is making headway there, but the student of primitive peoples finds that one of the important causes of their decay to be their bad judgment at adopting civilized dress, unsuited to their customs and climate. A mistake is made likewise by workers in physical tasks in imitating the dress of the wealthy and professional classes. The dress of the higher classes often is chosen because of its unsuitableness for an active worker. It serves thus to mark its wearer as one engaged in delicate tasks or as a person of leisure. Possibly, therefore, because of their strong social ambitions, the manual workers in America more than elsewhere adopt a costume that is not sensible or sanitary. 3. The intelligence of the worker is affected by the form of his enjoyments. This does not refer to the use made of spare time for regular study in night schools, correspondence schools, vacation work, but to the use of time when seeking recreation. The choice of recreation reacts upon the nature of the man. Will he read a book or play billiards? In proper proportions, both may be good. In excess, both are evil. Liking realism, does he read Howells or the blood-curdling serial entitled Piping the Mystery? Does he devote his spare hours to the Scientific American or to the Police Gazette? At the moment, there may be as much pleasure in one as in the other. And one might add, in Hiberian phrase, yes, and more too. Does he enjoy music, the theater, 
or the cheaper attractions of Coney Island and the Bowery? Is his recreation permeated with a certain intellectual ambition? There may be just as much momentary joy in one choice as in another, and life is shaped by the direction of one's enjoyments. Much depends on the natural bent. Some natures incline to the healthy as the plant grows towards the sun. With most characters, much depends on the influences of neighborhood life. Thus, the boys' clubs and college settlements of the cities, the schools, and playgrounds of the villages are tending to surround child life with healthier conditions that will mold it into better social habits. 4. The form of the worker's expenditures affects his industrial virtues. This is not a moral lecture. It is a look at the economic side of the subject. There are some moral qualities, however, that are closely connected with efficiency, while others are not. Some individuals are corrupt in private personal relations, but square in business dealings. But usually there is some connection between the two, and under modern conditions this is becoming closer. Fitness for daily tasks is affected by the daily thoughts of the worker. Sorted and foul thoughts, like an internal malady, sap the economic efficiency of the worker. Clean, bright thoughts act as a tonic. Drink, gambling, fast living, unfit men for positions of trust, while many pastimes leave the moral nature cleaner and stronger. Few can live a double life, honorable, conscientious, and exact in one part of the day, and corrupt in another. Dr. Jekyll's and Mr. Hyde's are not often found in real life. The habitual train of thought in leisure hours possesses and controls the man throughout his work. It is said that a man is what his work makes him but it is equally true that a man's work tends to become what he is. A man fit for a higher kind of work rises to it in the usual order of things, but no matter how humble the task, it partakes of the worth and the wholesomeness of its doer. Section 3. Effects on the Abiding Welfare of the Consumer 1. Man and his welfare are the end and aim of the economic process. The starting point of industry is wants, the goal is welfare. Momentary gratification is only a way station, not the journey's end. Too often, in economic reasoning, things are looked at from the employer's point of view. The older writers, such as Ricardo and Mill, were inclined to take what John B. Clark had called the feed-and-work view, the view that the workman is merely an agent of production, a means to an end, that his food, the same as coal for an engine, is to be thought of rather as employer's cost than as consumer's gratification. But, in the broader view, the welfare of men as men is the subject most worthy of economic study. The workman's food is to gratify his hunger, primarily, not merely to make him a better working machine. This reverses the order of the older reasoning. The use made of the income is itself a kind of production, its last stage. Is the process on the whole worthwhile? This can only be judged by finding whether, on the whole, the welfare of man has been furthered. 2. An income yields the maximum gratification when it is apportioned among goods so that their marginal utilities, as nearly as possible, are equal. Even a small income is income capable of many applications. The choice lies among many thousands of articles. Utility varies not only according to the kinds of good, but according to the varying quantities of each. Every moment, therefore, the conditions of a choice are changing. The best use of income forbids the purchase of an additional unit of any good unless it affords the highest gratification obtainable, at the moment, 
at an equal price. Various circumstances prevent the exact application of this rule. Expenditure is a matter of habit in large measure, rather than a matter of judgment. The knowledge needed for a rational choice very often is lacking. Appetites change, making unwise the old purchases, yet men go on buying the same things in the same proportion simply because a readjustment that would give greater gratification requires thought. Finally, the best economic adjustment must conform to the abiding physical and moral welfare of the user, not to a temporary impulse, and such a choice is far more difficult than that of the temporary good. 3. Progress takes place where new wealth gratifies marginal wants as intense as those of the preceding period. If the utility of every kind of goods decreased uniformly as wealth increased, desire would steadily decline in intensity. But old wants vary and new wants develop with prosperity. Desire grows by what it feeds on. Ambition passes on to other and higher peaks. The direction of the individual man's life thus is determined by the expenditure of his increasing income. Wealth makes possible a new adjustment of life, a new character, both in the individual and in the society. The thought that needs emphasis in this connection is that, while production and consumption are separable in thought and distinguishable in practice, they are not opposed in their ultimate purpose. The highest fruits of production are in the lessons of sacrifice and discipline and in its opportunities for experience and self-expression. The best result of the consumption of wealth is not the gratification of appetite, but the strengthening of the spiritual forces within men. The world is to rise to a higher social stage, not by banishing labor and by multiplying sensual enjoyments of the commoner sort. Wealth, even in an economic view, is not the end of life, but merely the means to its realization. 4. Enjoyment is increased by a proper variety and harmony of goods. As the old kinds of goods increase in amount and fall in value, there must be a substitution of new goods. An element added to the dress or to the diet heightens greatly the total gratification. The result is a unit. Think of a dinner without butter, or a cranberry pie without sugar, or a dress suit without a linen collar. Certain combinations are essential to the requirements of developed taste and present a problem of complementary goods. Combinations of complementary goods enhance the enjoyment, inharmonious combinations decrease it. That certain things go together is a fact that rests often in the nature of things. Complementary colors please the eye. Well-seasoned dishes please the palate. Again, the harmony of goods is affected by the special nature of the occupation. A farmer, with his out-of-door life, can use tobacco with far less danger than the sedentary worker. A piano player cannot be a baseball player. The one requires soft and supple hands, the other hard and callous ones. The young man must give up the piano or the game or play both badly. The harmony may rest on a still more complex social adjustment. The loss to the man whose life is, in the main, on a higher plane is greater if he descends occasionally to a lower. A ditch-digger, looking at the question short-sightedly, may deem a good drunk a very desirable form of enjoyment. But a brain-worker whose joy as well as efficiency depends on the clearness of his intellectual processes must see that in his case the perils and the costs are much greater. Wise consumption depends not alone on physical pleasures, but on the spiritual unity of the uses made of goods. Happiness and character are akin in the qualities of simplicity and unity. 
happiness, so far as it depends on wealth, is a harmony of gratifications. Character is a harmony of actions, a group of complementary deeds. There can be no harmony without a central, simple, guiding principle. The wise and moral use of goods and the economic use of them are therefore for the individual essentially the same. Life is a unity. The results of the choice of goods are reflected in the health, intelligence, happiness, morality, and progress of society. It is vain for the economist to ignore the ultimate relations between economic choice and morality. It is folly for the moralist to ignore the economic basis of right and wrong in human conduct. End of chapter 41